With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Eric Allen. And uh, my guest today, guest panel, is uh, John Zukowski, Peter Ewart, and James Steidel. And we're going to get into a number of subjects today. Uh, we'll be all over the map. Uh, looking at the newspaper, the demise of newspapers in British Columbia, northern British Columbia, specifically northeast part of the province. Going to be taking a big hit next week. And uh, we're also going to get into Site C, uh, where we're at with Site C, where we think we're going with Site C, and, you know, what does the actual power for British Columbia look like? Uh, going into the future with mines and uh, hydrogen plants and LNG, etc. Um, a few other things we want to get into is, is grocery, cost of groceries again, especially in the north. And uh, there's some programs and some money available for food banks from the uh, provincial government. So we'll see what, what we can make of that. So I'm going to start off with Site C and with Peter Ewart, and he'll give us the uh, Kind of an overview of what's going on at the moment. Thanks, Eric. You know, the Site C Dam on the, the Peace River is the largest public infrastructure project in BC history. In 2014, the estimated cost was $8.8 billion. The estimated cost in 2021 has skyrocketed up to $16 billion. The estimated cost today, some believe it could be as much as $20 billion. Now, this project has been controversial from the very beginning. It was opposed by indigenous peoples, farmers whose land is confiscated, environmentalists, as well as some uh, energy industry experts. And there's been a protest, yearly protest that has taken place, uh, you know, called Paddle for the Peace, which has uh, brought out hundreds of people. Now, the uh, Site C, this uh, project was brought in by the B.C. Liberal, the Christie Clark B.C. Liberals, the now the B.C. United Party. It was strongly opposed by the NDP at the time, but after they came to power in 27, 2017, they reversed their course and approved it. The project has been plagued with court cases, environmental issues, unanticipated geotechnical problems with the Earth Foundations and design problems. And at the beginning of this year, it's been 72% complete. So what it looks like is there's going to be a lot of the power generated will go to giant LNG fossil fuel monopolies and other resource monopolies, including hydrogen projects in the PG area, if they, if these go ahead. Some observers believe that for everyone else, what's going to happen is the hydro rates will eventually go up and we'll be stuck with an astronomical 16 or $20 billion bill along with interest payments over many decades. One of the things that uh, comes out of research and all this is that uh, when you even go around the world, uh, dams w that get built uh, often go over budget, you know, and they end up being a windfall for big corporations, but a debt for the people, you know, and so, so that's one of the questions that comes up if we're looking at this 16 billion or whatever it may be. Uh, what if those funds were used for other priorities, like health care and so on? Ben Parfit of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives calls for a public inquiry into the whole project. 
And we have to look at, you know, really fundamental questions here. Are giant mega projects the way to go in terms of energy production? You know, some people believe that uh, they're not. One what we need is uh, smaller, more local projects, you know, to generate the uh, energy. You know, because these mega projects, like uh, another mega project that's taking place is the TMX pipeline that the federal government is paying for. You know, which has gone from $12 billion to $31 billion. You know, so there's something wrong with this equation, right? And uh, I think a lot of people think. Okay, thanks, Peter. Uh, <clears throat> so there's sort of a sense of what's going on. We don't really know. We know that they're looking at um, a hydro plant at Prince George and possibly another one in McLeod Lake. These things really eat up the power. They can't. I mean, the, the whole idea of it being here is the idea that we have cheap power. Um, but at the end of the day, when it's completed, we'll have a hundred jobs. So, I don't think for what we're paying for it, that's much of a payback. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think uh, I think the you know the eight billion originally the, the eight billion price tag. Uh, you know, the justification back then was, was that it wouldn't go over budget, you know. And, and I called that out back then in, in 2018, and I was told by some heavy-duty labor uh, representatives that, you know, what do, what do I know? Uh, you know, these, these things are uh, budgeted for $8 billion and then we got to trust the experts. And, yeah, like Peter says, here we are, $20 billion. You know, had we known that at the time, uh, you know, would we have gone ahead with this thing? And, and the answer has got to have been no. Um, do we need the power? Uh, you know, BC Hydro continually has these crazy projections of how much more power the province is going to need, and it, it, none of it's ever come true for, like, the last 10, 15, 20 years. Like, we basically held steady on power consumption despite growing the population. has a lot to do with energy efficiencies that we've been finding and, and, uh, and whatnot. So... You know, what, what's the point of this uh, $20 billion expenditure and... and so we've got to find a reason, right? And that reason is, well, we'll do some LNG, uh, Bitcoin mining. Uh, we talked about that on the show. Uh, you know, the the applications for Bitcoin mines in our region will basically consume, I, I forget the statistic here, but uh, Peter and Eric, I don't know if you guys remember, I think it was, what, 50, 70% of Site C is uh, was potentially going to be used for Bitcoin mining. Like an, an incredible amount. Uh, I might be wrong on those numbers, but I, I believe that uh, that was the rationale why BC Hydro shut that down, or the government shut that down. That's subject of a lawsuit right now. But uh, yeah, it, it's a tragic waste of money, a tragic waste of uh, the environment. Like what what happened to that Peace Valley is is unbelievable that we did that. Uh, it's it's uh, just just lack of leadership, and I think a, a great example of of making policy to benefit. Uh, special interests, and in this case, the site senior NDP, it was to satisfy the uh, labor movement. Yeah, absolutely, that would be part of it. Uh, John, would you make some comments on that? Well, sort of a, with the NDP, they're, they were forced uh, between a rock and a hard place. You've got a project that's already underway, uh, commitments made, people working, uh, what do you do? Do you pull an Avro arrow and just yank the carpet underneath, out from underneath a bunch of people that are relying on, on the project for paychecks and, uh, feeding families? 
Yeah, the project is well underway. It wouldn't make any sense to walk away from it. Uh, the same occurred with the uh, with the Aero project when the government yanked the carpet out from underneath Avril. Uh, that that decimated uh, the community back east, uh, as well as uh, tertiary jobs that were created by the. Uh, the production that was going on. So it, it, it was a catch-22. You just can't walk away from something that's already started. If you don't have a debate before you launch a project, when you should be talking about the pros and cons, then you walk yourself into a catch-22, and that's what we have. So the NDP was forced to have to carry on with this and get it done. So uh, it's a case of now looking at what Hydro's doing, we have to see, is it a wise use? Where's the power going to be used? Who's going to pay for it? Uh, because it shouldn't be downloaded to uh, to the homeowners. It should be uh, uploaded to large industry. If they're going to be using a base of the power, then they need to pay for it. Go ahead, James. Yeah, sorry, just just uh, pulled up that uh, petition of claim there in the Supreme Court of BC. So BC Hydro claimed that uh, Conifex's Bitcoin proposals alone would use almost half of the output of the Site C. So, uh, yeah, that Bitcoin mining is it was is potentially going to be a huge chunk of uh, of why we built that thing. So this brings up an interesting point because. You know the uh, the hydrogen plants that they're looking at. Uh, I think like the one in uh, BCR Industrial Park would probably eat up maybe two thirds or three thirds of site C power. And then we got you know other mines coming on. It's going to eat up a bunch of it. So in essence, we don't have any power beyond these projects. And uh, now. <clears throat> the way the governments talk about these things, I and mean, they always use the term that Site C would produce enough electricity to power 470,000 homes in BC. And that's basically the main line that we heard. We didn't hear any discussion, or at least I didn't, on how much power was going to be used for hydrogen uh, and uh, ammonia plants or uh, additional LNG plants. Or mines are coming on stream, but if you look at it now, it looks like that that was a, the sole intent of Site C. Does that mean that we go fishing for our power and hope that we can get enough to put our lights on, or you know, are they going to build another, like a Site D, or something like that? I don't know what the hell they're doing. Peter, what do you think? Oh yeah, well, Site D and then Site E and then Site F yeah. for failure. Uh, no, like the. Uh, there's a certain irrationality that seems to be at play here, right? Where it's not clear to people anywhere in terms of where we're going in terms of uh, energy production and, uh, you know, uh, where where these different industries are going to go and uh, how much energy there's going to be available and, and, and so on, right? And uh, so we need, you know, like that's one of the things that uh, Ben Parfitt's called for is... Uh, is a public inquiry. You know, we need to look into this whole thing, right, in terms of where we're going. Otherwise, we end up with boondoggles, you know, which the Site C uh, could be one of those. Well, well once the uh, salmon, uh, you know, disappear out of the Fraser River, we'll dam up the Fraser next. Yeah, I suppose we could do that. Uh, further south, though, maybe just 
before it goes into Vancouver or something. Let them deal with some of the water problems for a while. So we should, should be tit for tat. Every time they they uh, put some land here underwater, then they have to put some underwater down in the <laughs> south coast. <laughs> Remain the status quo. Right now they get the benefits. <clears throat> the thing that kind of irritates me a bit, too, is that, you know, the, the uh, hydro ammonia plant be a number of jobs when they're constructing them, but when they're finished, like I said earlier, it'd be 100 jobs or something. That is not mm. too many jobs. You know, if we had the power and the money and the intestinal fortitude, we could build two or three medium-sized lumber mills like, say, Dunkley here. Maybe go back to Alpierre and open it up or whatever and create maybe two and a half, three times as many jobs as these hydro plants and do some uh, long-term planning for timber supply, and we could have 900 jobs for the next 50 years. Mm. Just working in the forest industry at a little slower pace than we're doing it right now because there's really no hurry to knock these forests down except if you happen to be the company that is making money on it. Mm. You know, down in the States, if you don't pay the price for the uh, timber when it's up for bid, they'll tell you, come back next year, the trees will still be here. And that's the attitude they have down there. They're not selling out uh, just to make the dollar today and be gone tomorrow. They're going to be there in the long term. And that's where the mills in north central B.C. are heading, down into the southern states. So <clears throat> if it's creating jobs, then there's lots of ways of doing that besides this power. What do you think, John? Yeah, no, I, I uh, tend to agree with you there. Uh, we have to get back to the whole reasoning for sightseeing in the first place, and and that was following the logic of LNG production. Uh, because to produce LNG, you have to take and compress the natural gas to turn it into a liquid. That takes a lot of electrical power to do that. So that was the whole intent. There's There's a chain, and we quite often lose focus of what that chain was originally. So, you know, Bitcoin mining, that's, I'm sorry, I don't put any weight or, or faith in that. That's just a waste of time just to keep some nerds happy in a back room somewhere. <laughs> uh, there's no real monetary backing in that. It doesn't benefit the, the community at all. Uh, whereas uh, logging, mining and forestry uh, and uh, natural resource production, that creates jobs in the long term. Yeah, that's what we need uh, cheap power for. Not only that, but we need it for heating our homes. Mm -hmm. We should be able to do that rather than go to natural gas, which is the bigger polluter, and uh, that type of thing. Go ahead, James. Yeah, just just regarding, you know, BC Hydro's overall strategy, it's kind of to create these real centralized uh, power production uh, facilities. And, you know, to do that, basically we've kind of discouraged the decentralized model where where you, you you basically allow private citizens to to contribute to the power. I mean, we could do a lot with uh, with um, allowing private uh, companies or individuals to set up solar panels on the the roof of their house and sell it back into the the grid. You know, they, the BC Hydro kind of limits that. Uh, you're allowed to do that to power yourself, your own home, but uh, you know, there's restrictions on how much power you can sell back into the grid. So. You know, these kind of policies, I think, need to be addressed. I think that could help contribute a lot more power uh, getting uh, getting into the system. Yeah, we got to remember that once we get... Oh, we're going to go for a breakdown, and uh, we'll pick this up when we get back. 
friends, Dylan Stone here from the Country Gold Mine. Have you ever dreamt of going to Nashville and making the rounds from Tootsie's to the Bluebird Cafe to the Grand Ole Opry? Well, let us take you down Music Row and you can live the honky-tonk lifestyle with us every Friday night right here on CFIS 93.1 FM. Brought to you by Darren Guest at Northland Dodge, the Country Gold Mine, Friday nights from 8 to 10 here on 93.1 CFIS FM. First Student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to the family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics. Let First Student put you in the driver's seat. You'll need a full driver's license, clean record, must be safety-focused, and enjoy working with children. Apply online through workatfirst.com or call Christine at 250-900-8220. Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250-900-8220. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes. Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers this morning with rain beginning near noon. A risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, a high of 11. Tonight, rain ending near midnight, then clearing. Fog developing overnight and a low of 5. For Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud becoming cloudy in the afternoon. Wind becoming southeast 20, gusting to 40 near noon and a high of 11. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. We're just going to finish off this Site C thing and we'll go on to uh, something else. I just wanted to mention, you know, that some of the negotiations, like with the uh, hydrogen plant going down in uh, the BCR industrial plant, or yard that they're talking about, it's interesting when you read some of the uh, newspaper articles, they say that the, they're in negotiation with the late, late in 2021. And then something else will say there was negotiations going on or talking with the government at such and such a time. So, you know, that's two years ago and probably something going on prior to that. We don't know anything about that. We don't, you know, until it gets to this point and then we start hearing more because they're going to have public meetings and that type of thing, you know, be a couple of public meetings this month on uh, on uh, what they call the Coyote uh, uh, Hydro Hydrogen Hydrogen Ammonia Plant. It's two plants in one, actually. So, you know, that's uh, begs the question of how how long has people in government actually known all about this and planning for it and looking into the future for it. But keeping us under the mushrooms so we don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And and this goes on all the time, you know. But how can we make a judgment on a good use of power in British Columbia and creating jobs when they've already made the decision and the plan of where they're going and who's going to get it, which is, near as I can see, it's all going overseas. Mm-hmm. You know, where the... James knows the uh, saying, hewers of wood and carriers of water or something. That's all we are. And, and I get sick and tired of that sort of deal that, you know, just sit back and let us take care of things because we know what we're doing. Well, 
I'll tell you, they don't. They don't know what they're doing, and they haven't for quite some time. And if you go to Hydro and look at it, not that long ago, they had the BC Transmission Corporation set up. They were going to have a, another entity of Hydro to just handle the transmission of electricity around the province. $65 million later, they wrote it off and for, totally forgot about it. It was finished. That's mm. just one. There's all sorts of things like that. So, anybody want to say another word on this before? No, I want to... Like one of the things that just calls into question is the whole way that things are done, right? As you say, right? You know, the people are kept out in the dark, out in the cold about these things where plans are being made, and and then they're sprung upon us, right? But it's not as if uh, they're seeking approval or whatever and all that. It's a it's a done deal already, and so it gets to the heart of the whole the political economic system. How much say? people have in making these decisions that affect their lives in a big way. So I think that's something that we have to think about as well, is, is the, the whole political side of this and the whole fact that we don't have mechanisms for people to actually express their will, uh, and instead we just have this stuff sprung upon us. Yeah, we're going to get into, uh, I think we'll go to the uh, newspaper thing here, the newspapers that are being terminated, and... Uh, we can bring up some of, uh, you know, North Central BC is about 300,000 people, and uh, Northeastern BC, where, where some of these newspapers are being shut down, is a lot less than that, like maybe 75,000 people. And a government that's empowered primarily to have big projects and, and few jobs is not the kind of government that we need. Because we need a government that's going to be forward-looking, creating jobs. I mean, Alberta probably has 10 or 15 different industries in the province of Alberta, over and above uh, oil, not related to oil at all. It could be anything from farming to potato chips to <laughs> agriculture to anything. they got all kinds of, you know, they make bricks and they make uh, glass for uh, windshields and all sorts of things. Look around here and see what we do, other than making a few contracts we have with some uh, businesses. We're not creating any jobs, and we haven't created any jobs here for 20 years. So it's time to wake up. But right now we'll go to... Uh, um, did you get a chance to read on the newspapers, Peter? Uh, yeah, I did, right? I, I got some views on this, right? You know, like you have the closure of the Alaska Highway News, the Dawson Creek Daily Mirror, and the Fort Nelson News. And what's happened is the whole northeast of this province has become a local news desert. Uh, and this is happening in other parts of British Columbia and the country as a whole. And it's part of the crisis that's taking place in the journalism news uh, field. You know, like you have the, the, on the economic front, you have the big tech social media companies scooping up advertising. And they're, and they're taking the advertising away from the, from the other, you know, big monopolies like post media and so on, but also smaller operations. And there's been, you know, as part of the crisis of journalism, you have the deterioration of the quality of journalism, elimination of investigative journalism, fact checking and so on. And then you have, uh, on the political side, you have censorship by the big tech companies using algorithms and other stuff like this, right? So, you have um, you have a crisis, and it's it's been exacerbated by you know all the fake news that's come out. You know that you know we go back to the Iraq War, the so-called weapons of mass destruction, 
or in Libya, the you know, the, the um, false news that was justified to b- bomb it into oblivion. The, the, the fact is, is that journalism and news is like a utility. It's a necessity for the running. It's a necessity for the running of society. You need a foundation of facts, and without like local media, studies have shown, like in the U.S., that uh, that political corruption goes up. You know, because there's no local media to to question how things are going. You know, so what are the solutions? You know, right currently, right now, you have the local media initiative where government hands out hands out to the uh, to the big uh, to to the private corporations. Uh, for example, Post Media, but Post Media, who, who owns it? Well, it's owned by a U.S. hedge hedge fund. So there's an attempt to there's an attempt to do local journalism journalism which is dependent on advertising, but it's very difficult today. And then you have philanthropist donation, right? You know, like uh, where some some uh, rich person donates money. But um, you know, the whole question of um, uh, what about the public and community interest? And we need new new models to be creative in this changed world in terms of news. We need new ways of doing things. You know, one of the things I think is important is government. Uh, we need government to fund local communities of a certain size to run, to have journalism, local journalism. The issue is who will do this in the community? How do, how do you get away from bias? Who, who decides who would get the funding? But uh, we, anyway, we need to think about things like this. Uh, new models that can deal with this uh, with this situation because otherwise we just we're ending up with local news deserts all over the country. Okay, we're going to go for a break and then uh, we'll come back and do a little bit more on this subject. If you would like to get involved with Tai Chi but are looking for a gentler way to do it, the Prince George Public Library is offering gentle seated Tai Chi. Instructor Tom Hind will lead you through a Tai Chi form with easy to follow gentle movements which can be done seated or standing. The gentle seated Tai Chi sessions are offered on Fridays from 12.30 to 1.30, alternating between the two libraries. The next Tai Chi session is October 27th from 12.30 to 1.30 at the Downtown Public Library. Hi, I'm Darren Guest from Northland Dodge. People hate buying cars, I hate buying cars. If you're holding off buying because you don't want to deal with the hassle, I'm here to make it easy for you. Northland Dodge has more trucks in stock than we have had in the past three years. Plus, we have a huge assortment of awesome used trucks and SUVs. No pressure, no hard sell. Stop by for a coffee and I'll help you find the vehicle that's right for you. I'm Darren Guest, Northland Dodge, dealer number 30501. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes. Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. North Edge Ice Sports has moved. You can now find all your recreational and competitive figure skating skates and accessories at Quebec and 3rd. While there, purchase roller skates or inline skates so you can skate all year round. Stop by and check out the assortment of outfits and accessories as you get ready for the coming season. Open from 10 to 5, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, 9 to 2, Saturday. North Edge Ice Sports, in the Q3 building, Kitty Corner, to the Farmer's Market at Quebec and 3rd. 
Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. Uh, I'm going to go to James to get his take on these newspaper closures and uh, newspaper industry overall, and then we'll go to John and get his take. Go ahead. Yeah, I just don't I don't think people really are aware of how... <clears throat> how momentous the, this uh, trend is to the functioning of our democracy. Uh, and, you know, we, we talk about the government stepping in to solve the problem, but I, I don't know if, if the government really wants to solve the problem. I mean, nothing, the government wants nothing more than to be able to spend your money with no oversight and with no accountability. All right? The, um, and that's, that's the main role of, of the media and the newspapers uh, over the history of basically Western democracy is to is to be somebody to uh, look out for the taxpayer as to how the government is spending money. And they, they, like Peter says, the government's giving money to uh, American-owned hedge fund to do some stories. I mean, I don't really see a lot of critical reporting in, in post-media. Uh, we've also got the CBC. I mean, this is a huge media organization that gets billions of dollars in, in public funding. But, uh, you know, are they looking out for the taxpayer? Like, where's where's the coverage of local uh, waste? I, I hear locally the Daybreak North team. I don't really see much uh, in the way of critical investigative journalism on issues that affect the North. You know, so, and, and I, I probably, that probably has something to do with uh, the priorities given to them by the corporate head office there at the CBC, and and probably one of those priorities is is not to undermine the bureaucracy, not to undermine the establishments of of power. Uh, so it's it's a huge problem. You need something independent. Uh, you need to finance that independently of government. I don't know. Maybe it almost needs to be something like a constitutional requirement in there. I mean, the, the bang for buck you get from funding journalism is huge. It doesn't take a lot of money uh, to get a lot of good reporting in return. I mean, that $100,000 uh, we talked about financing the Prince George Citizen for public notices that six of our nine city councillors uh, rejected uh, would have gone a huge way. I mean, you could finance basically two or at least, you know, one and a half uh, journalists for a year. And in a city like Prince George, that's that's a lot of reporting. That's a lot of facts that uh, could be uncovered with that uh, small amount of money. So huge issue. Uh, solution is unclear, but we got to figure something out. John, do you get some comment on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you, James. It's it's a case of, well, you know, with the local newspaper, uh, local newspapers doing investigative reporting and uh, people sitting around uh, a horseshoe are getting nipped in the backside because they're being caught uh, or being called out on things or city administrations being called out. However, city administrations putting the money out to publish public notices, it's kind of a catch-22. Um, that's why it's supposed to have legislative requirements. When you get the government uh, lax or, or easing up on legislative requirements for publication of public notices and stuff, uh, that's where you start stemming the tide and creating a problem for for uh, investigative reporting and reporting in general and for the media. So funding funding uh, the media through the government. Well, then we're we're talking about Justin Trudeau and a whole whack of cash given to Interfor. Skip the publications. Just let's look at the union that gets the money at the end of the day for for doing the job that they're told to do. Um, I don't know. I I think as you said, it should almost be a requirement that that it is a provincial fund for media outlets in every community. P- 
period. They get provincial funding, and that's it. That way, there isn't any concern about, well, I went after a counselor in the newspaper for my op-ed, and this is the backlash. Yeah, you can't, you can't scare off good reporting and good media. Uh, if it's funded, it's funded, and, and then the community here in Sarana runs our advertising there. As we were saying when we were off air, uh, we have to look at a pivotal shift in, in media and news and looking more at an electronic stream or an electronic way of getting it across to people. Uh, it's, it's a growing evolution for, for print media to go into the electronic age. And I, I think it'll be beneficial, but uh, mark my words, when they find that change and they hit it, oh, it's going to be big. It will be big. People will be able to get information, good, honest information, uh, quite readily. Peter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, just to, you know, further go along with this. Uh, like, I, I think that's what we have to think about. Like, is where, do, where can the funds come from in, in order to uh, finance local journalism? And I believe that, uh, you know, like, for example, like we have funds that uh, pay for the highways, that pay for health care and whatever and all this. We need funds that come from government, not from particular governments, not not picking and choosing the way that uh, the things are done right now. That's right. But, but rather the, the, a standard line item that a certain amount of money goes to uh, local communities to fund local journalism. And uh, the, the mechanisms for doing that in terms of who will get contracts and all that to be worked out, not necessarily to be put in the hands of municipal councillors, but uh, find other ways to, to uh, reflect the, the public interest, you know, so that we have local media that, that is assured of, of survival and can continue on and uh, contribute to the democratic process. Yeah, I think that's, uh, those are all pretty good points. Whether we'll ever get anything off the ground or not is something else, because we're not driving the engine. You know, all this is being done by big corporations or big databases or Elon Musk and the whatever. The uh, algorithm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the algorithm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, and we don't even know where people are getting their news today. You know, you hear things like, oh, I get my news on Facebook or I get my news here or there. But what kind of news? Who's putting it mm. out? What does it mean? Has it been uh, investigated? Do we know if it's true or not? There's too many too many variables out there. Before, you might have one or two newspapers. You could look through it, and you could write a letter to the editor or something and do it. But you're not going to go to 8 or 10 or 15 different places to get your news every day. Mm. Even today... The way it's kind of limping along now, you can spend a couple hours a day mm. just going around on the internet trying to find out what's going on. Well, most people can't afford, to, don't have the time to do that, and other people don't know how to do that. So the whole playing field is it's terrible, you know. And the fact that we're up here, they don't care. I like that little note that uh, Ma Murray put in there. She was the uh, Founding publisher of the Alaska Highway News, Margaret Ma Murray. She also had the Caribou newspaper for quite a number of years. Uh, she said, uh, it was important to be the only newspaper in the world that gives a tinker's dam about the North Peace. She was talking about the Alaska Highway News. And she was noted for being outspoken, and uh, she got a few awards. 
And she she put that kind of nicely by the, the only world the, the world newspaper in the world that gives the tinker's damn about the North Peace, which is to say that most people don't. And and contrary to popular belief, they don't give a tinker's damn about Prince George either. Not to the degree that they should be relative to the number of jobs and uh, and the, gen the revenue that we generate. So we're going to go to a break now. We'll come back, tell you why you got no food. If you are new to dance or have limited mobility, the Prince George Public Library is offering sessions in sit-stand line dance. Wendy Schmidt is the instructor on Friday afternoons, and dances can alternate between seated and standing. The free drop-in class is suitable for all adults, including those new to dance or exercise, seniors, and people with limited mobility. Sit-stand line dance with Wendy Schmidt alternates between library branches. The next session is from 12.30 to 1.30 on October 27th at the Nechaco branch. Youngsters between the ages of 5 and 12 can get an early jump on Halloween at the Prince George Public Library this Friday, which is a non-instructional day. The downtown branch will be offering Cackles and Cauldrons, a spectacular event filled with all things ghoulish and fun. Costumes for Cackles and Cauldrons are encouraged but not required. Come by the downtown branch of the Prince George Public Library between 1 and 3 on Friday for Cackles and Cauldrons, designed for ages 5 to 12. If you dare. There's plenty happening at the Heart Pioneer Center right through fall. Dance to the music of B-Side October 28th during the Oktoberfest Dinner and Dance. Take in the annual Craft Fair and Bake Sale November 4th and enjoy the next Roast Beef Dinner on November 19th. You're also encouraged to attend the general meeting at 1.30 Thursday, November 23rd. For event tickets and more information, call the Heart Pioneer Center at 250-962-6712. The Heart Pioneer Center, keeping you involved in the heart. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers this morning, with rain beginning near noon. A risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, a high of 11. Tonight, rain ending near midnight, then clearing. Fog developing overnight, and a low of 5. For Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, becoming cloudy in the afternoon. Wind becoming southeast 20, destined to 40 near noon, and a high of 11. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. We're going to go to uh, food shortages and uh, the high price of food, but James has got a little bit more on the newspapers, so we'll have some food for thought from James. Yeah, I just wanted to throw down, throw out a couple of little solutions, and, and John mentioned this in the, in the, the, the break there. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of money floating around in society that could be leveraged for journalism. Uh, one of those things is the university. So UNBC, you know, we've got a political science department up there. Uh, you know, they've got a pretty big budget, probably bigger than the newsroom of uh, Prince George Citizen. And they don't really engage too much in local politics. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of the engagement up there is in, in teaching is on kind of federal stuff. But maybe we need to... Uh, get more of that financing, that expertise, looking at our local institutions. Uh, another one is um, opposition research in the Legislative Assembly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money that uh, Legislative Assembly throws at opposition political parties to do opposition research, and that's actually a job I used to do. And we would dig up dirt on the governing party, and then we'd give that to to journalists to for you know help them do their work or whatever so there's there's a lot of avenues i think out there in society to contribute to investigative journalism and you know we just got to kind of put our heads together and figure out how to make that how to get that work to the public go ahead peter 
Uh, yeah, no, I, you know, j- just looking at a, what a model could be, for example, like if we have, like, uh, like John is saying there, like uh, the provincial government providing uh, uh, guaranteed funds to to uh, communities of a certain size, right? So with that, you know, say for example, if you have a million dollars for Prince George, uh, you could have a situation whereby uh, groups could uh, could bid on the contract to supply that news for a period of time. You know, like for example, like CFIS, for example, you know, could apply. You know, uh, could put its name forward or, or apply for the for that contract. And the, the contract could, could, could change from year to year. There's lots of local journalists around right now who have no kind of job, you know. You know, why not, why not have it like that, right? So that, uh, the, the, and you have a situation where the people actually have more of a say in terms of what journalism is here. You know, as it is right now, like, you know, post media, whatever, and all this, run by hedge funds in the U.S., you know, big tech. The, the people are left out in the cold. We need we need uh, news that is a lot closer to people and where people have more say over to, and who's going to be delivering it. You say something, John? Or? Yeah, no, I I agree with Peter. Uh, local media is our canary in a coal mine. Ultimately, uh, without local media doing reporting, doing investigative reporting, um, we don't know if something's up. And it's it's important that we have it, because if we don't have it, you're not going to have local government turning around and going, oh, hey, we made a mistake. Look, this we screwed up this way. Draw attention to what we've done wrong. That's not going to happen. So having local media, I think, is, is critical to uh, a happy public, especially in smaller northern communities. Okay, so we're going to swing over. I was going to go to food, but I think we'll go to the... Uh you want to go to the staff report to council? On the CN Center uh, yeah. sound system? Yeah. Did you want to say something on that? Or? Yeah, I guess we could maybe just do that in case we uh, run out the clock talking about food. A lot of talk, a lot of, lot to talk about there. Uh, yeah, if John and I wanted to uh, touch base on this uh, 900000 or more than that, $950,000 quote for a sound upgrade at the CN Center. Uh, that's getting voted on tonight at City Council. Uh, John did a little bit of back- background research on this, so I, I don't know if I want to pass the sword to John real quick. Yeah, we, uh, I accidentally came across a copy of the uh, Civic Facilities Renewal Strategy for 2019. And in that report, it covers the sound system at the CN Center needing, a, needing an upgrade of $300,000, and that's 2019. So now we jump forward to 2023, and all of a sudden we're over, estimated over a million dollars to upgrade the sound system at the CN Center. What happened? Like, I mean, this isn't packed up in a truck and moved across the country. Uh, performing arts or acts that come to the CN Center use their own sound system. So why are we dropping almost 1.2 into upgrading a sound system? When the, the report in 2019 says 300,000 and now they're looking for almost a million and change, um, there's a lot of questions here. Uh, it's, I don't know. When was the last time you upgraded your sound system at home, James? Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you had some, uh, some quality old 1960s speakers, I mean, they should still be good, right, John? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're an audiophile, 
of any sort. That old stuff's uh, the good stuff. D- yeah, it's seasoned. It's broken in. It works. You're not yeah. you're not trying to rumble a neighbor's out. Just need a new uh, fuse, a new transistor. Should be good to go. Exactly. You know, get in there with a blowgun, blow the dust out of it. Away you go. Uh, but I, I don't know what's <laughs> going on with the CN Center. For some reason, we need to change the head end, the amplifiers, the speakers. Uh, I'm... Uh, I would like to see an independent consultant brought in to go over this. And I guarantee this new stuff nowadays is like, you think it's going to last as, I don't know. We Honestly, we have no idea what we're talking about here. But just from my experience with modern technology is usually the old stuff's better. Yeah. Especially, yeah, I, especially for sound systems. I mean, yeah. uh, they got all this new computerized uh, gizmos in here. Like, when when do you got to upgrade it again? Well, I don't, I don't know what it is. I guess they want to have some new toys or something. Uh, because I, I come from the uh, old phase linear world and Electro Voice and you know Marshalls and it, if you're going to turn around and bring a put in a sound system in a facility, you bring in a sound engineer, you balance out the building, you figure out what you need, and then you. Spec it, and usually it's spec to last at least a good twenty or thirty years, and then it's all modular. You yank a component out, put a new component in to replace it. It's already planned, but why they come up with this estimation of you know being a million and more? Who knows? Big chunk of change. Okay, we're gonna go to a break now, and then we'll come back and finish this one off. Registration is open for the Prince George Pikes Diving Club. Providing recreational and competitive diving at the Prince George Aquatic Center, lessons are available for all skill levels, but you must know how to swim. So whether you're returning to the sport or looking to expand your water sport skills, the Prince George Pikes Diving Club is ready for you. For registration and more details, visit the PG Pikes Diving Club's Facebook page. Registration is open through December 7th. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes, Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. Are you a leader who wants to take their leadership to the next level? Do you have an emerging leader on your team who needs support? At Pivot Leader, our Leaders in Business program combines leadership training with one-on-one coaching to help leaders just like you. You'll learn how to deal with people better, handle conflict, hire and keep staff, delegate more effectively, read financial statements, and learn coaching skills to move your team along. There's a less stressful way to improve your outcomes. We can show you how. If you'd like to be a better leader, reach out to us today at pivotleader.com. Pivot Leader will help you grow, train, and sell your business. Hi, I'm Darren Guest from Northland Dodge. People hate buying cars. I hate buying cars. If you're holding off buying because you don't want to deal with the hassle, I'm here to make it easy for you. Northland Dodge has more trucks in stock than we have had in the past three years. Plus, we have a huge assortment of awesome used trucks and SUVs. No pressure, no hard sell. Stop by for a coffee and I'll help you find the vehicle that's right for you. I'm Darren Guest, Northland Dodge, dealer number 30541. You're listening okay, to After 9 on okay. Prince George's Community oh, Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. Going to finish this off. Uh, uh, I think this subject on the uh, $950,000 expenditure for a sound system is going to be discussed at City Hall tonight. 
So being an eternal optimist, uh, maybe we'll just let our counselors debate it and uh, vote and make the right decision. Yeah, James and I have got a little axe to grind because now it's been a full year since the election. So let's. I'm looking forward to. I will be viewing the council meeting tonight. So I'm. I'm really interested in seeing how this is handled. What about you, James? Oh yeah, I, I hope there's some uh, good questions uh, tonight. There's another item on the agenda that I'm interested in too about the uh, brush sixty thousand dollars to go around town brushing, uh, brushing some trees. I'd like to know some more info details on that one. Brushing trees. You want to just touch on that, James? While you. Well, there's not a lot of details in there. Basically, they want to go through the green spaces of Prince George and cut down uh, immature uh, trees, they're saying. Um, and I'm not quite sure what... Uh, my, my guess is they're going to be going after the our poor little aspens in the green spaces. I'm working on a column right now, uh, kind of about fire smarting and Prince George and, and kind of the, the need to really... Well, it's going to be a two-part column. There's there's a lot we need to do about fire smarting. Uh Probably going around cutting down aspen is not is not the way to go. I think you know if we're going to be spending money cutting down immature trees, it should be exclusively conifer. Uh, so I sent a little email into Marin Council to see if they had details on that. But uh, yeah, I mean a lot goes on at City Hall that we don't really know the details on, and we hand out all this money and and there's no debate. And and meanwhile we'll spend three hours talking about denying the Prince George uh, citizen a hundred thousand dollars to publish public notices. You know, and that's a huge. Uh, cause a concern for six out of the nine councillors but uh, I guarantee you the 60 grand on brushing is just going to be passed and that'll be the end of it so anyway get out you know when we I think this is a little uh, final note here on this subject folks you need to start paying more attention to your governments you don't have the media out there you don't have the newspapers doing the job that uh, you relied on uh, get onto those agendas before the meeting read them send in your questions and try to hold these guys accountable Okay, so Rebecca, we're just going to finish off here on uh, food. Two two issues: major Canadian grocers won't confirm discount price that they promised to the uh, federal government. So they got different ways of getting around that. And then Northern BC Food Banks is going to get additional funding, allowing better access to. Uh, nutritious food. So it's rather interesting that we have these food banks in the Prince George, greater Prince George area. We're getting funding from the provincial government to feed people. Maybe we take some of that money that uh, they have laying around and create some jobs and employment and they can buy buy their own food. I know that's a radical idea, but uh, you know, they could take a shot at it. So the major Canadian grocers, in my opinion, know exactly what they're doing. They've known what they're doing with food prices prior to the, the pandemic, through the pandemic, and they know what they're doing now. They're not going to volunteer any information to the government that's going to indicate that they were gouging. Heaven forbid that that should happen. So we're going to get the old uh, dog and pony show. And uh, so what's new? Uh, maybe I'm going to just give this to start it off with Peter because this is a big issue and the price of food I don't know, what do you think Peter? Uh, well I think the, the, the price of food is influenced a lot by the fact that uh, Canada has become so highly monopolized 
you know, you have a situation where a, a small handful of, of huge firms, often with backed by foreign money, and uh, can control the the, the the food industry. And uh, as a result, we have a situation whereby uh, uh, we run into the, the inflation problem that's taking place, which uh, you know. So many times, government and some of the, the big companies, they say inflation is something that comes from the heavens or whatever, right? They have nothing to do with it. But I, I, I believe very much that they, they do have something to do with it in a big way. And, you know, so we have a situation whereby uh, uh, people are facing these high prices for fruit all over the place. And, it's, and one of the indications of it is... Um, the fact that uh, you know the the provinces are going to be supplying uh, five million dollars in food banks to BC and public health association food banks, you know, a few a few decades ago and all that, when they brought first brought in food banks, it was seen as some kind of temporary measure, but now they've become a permanent part of life, yeah. which underscores the fact that uh, we got a real food problem here in terms of pricing and. Um, I think one of the Canada, you know, has a competition bureau that is completely toothless, and uh, we have to wake up to the fact that uh, we live in a country that these monopolies have way too much power. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, you know it's not it's not complicated to solve the problem. The government just has to go to these different people, get specific uh, items like. Uh, canned milk from Ontario to Vancouver or Prince George. Give us all your costs associated with getting that to the retail store and do the same with different commodities around the province and across the country and get a documented evidence of what your costs are. I'll guarantee you that you'll find that 30, 40, 50% of your costs are just inflation or at least profit driven and that they're not real costs, they're just costs that they can add in there, like as an example, who checks to see if their fuel surcharge is actually a correct charge, or if it's just a charge they put on there. You know, yeah. Who checks at the airport when they put on an airport improvement fee of $10 over and above the 25 you're paying now to fly to Vancouver? You know, we look at it, we say, oh, we got to pay that, and they got a song and dance about why they need the money. Usually, if you really looked into it, it's not justifiable. And we get this all the time. So we need something specific that we can look at and say, okay, you're saying it costs this to bring this from Vancouver. In actual fact, we could bring it up on the back of a pickup truck cheaper than that and, and look after everybody in Prince George. So don't give us that BS. I've been down this road before. We can actually consolidate in Vancouver, hire a truck, bring it to Prince George and deliver it cheaper than the trucking companies can because they don't have all the overhead. But there are cheaper ways of doing it. But these guys don't look for cheaper ways because they know at the end of the day, whatever their costs are, it's going to be passed on to you and I and they're going to still make the same profits. And they don't care because we're paying it. So why would you care? Mm. Hey, if you were paying it, now, that might be a different story. You might look at the rate and say to the uh, trucking company or somebody, we're not paying that. So mm. who wants to take that? Yeah, I, I, yeah I, just, I just want to point out that, you know, instead of spending millions of dollars on a food bank, I think that kind of money should be thrown at um, developing our own agricultural self-sufficiency here, uh, smaller uh, gardens, uh, smaller farms locally, uh, 
you know, some of these rural, real remote communities, like how, how about we um, invest in greenhouses there and, and their own self-sufficiency? I think the payback there would be much bigger uh, than just making us um, reliant on these on these food banks. Well, I think we need the uh, the bigger stores just because of the number of people that you're feeding, but we don't need to give them all a business. And I've been suggesting for a little while now that we have a 70-30 mentality. We've spent 70% in the big store, 30% at the farmer's market. You know, in the end of the day, it'll work out. You won't cost you that much more money. In some cases, you get a much better product. But now you're in charge of spending your money instead of just going out blindly spending it at your favorite place. We've got to wind her down and call her a day. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank my panel. And uh, we'll be back next Monday. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Darren Guess, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. Listen for a rebroadcast of today's program tonight at 10. And for past shows, check out the archives link at CFISFM.com. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at Yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFISFM, proudly supported by local businesses like New Look Interiors, now located at number 12E, 1839 First Avenue.